Welcome to the Tone That Made Us podcast. Dan and I live gear. So much so that we started a podcast to give us a vehicle to nerd out with some of our favorite artists. Uh, these days when I say, oh my God, this is the sexiest thing I ever saw. My wife doesn't even flinch anymore. She's like, Dan, send you another picture or something. And now it's like me, Dan, and Zach Blair constantly sending each other pictures of stuff that uh and i and our wives are happy because it's not like we're looking at chicks or anything sorry chicks wife girls women yeah um so this week's episode is with a groove master uh playing drums in bands like split lip chamberlain new end original the americans uh gavin rossdale institute sam i am i'm sure i forgot some in there um he blends pocket and groove while tastefully blasting interesting and powerful colorful textures and fills um there are not many drummers i know that can play a perfect part for every song and this is definitely one of them a member of the indie drum collective our old friend charlie walker Hello. Wow, man. That's a lovely introduction. I feel like I need pyro <laughs> behind me. <laughs> How are you guys? We'll work that in. Good. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having yeah. me. Great, great to see you. God, who would have thought 30 years ago, somewhere around 30 years, you know, when we're like hanging out in crappy VFW halls, <laughs> you know, at shows and stuff, we'd be here talking bearded and, uh, and and still rocking as as older men yeah it's a blessing i think getting older and you know of course we didn't think that was going to happen it was a live fast die young and now it's live slow and die old in my book you know so <laughs> yep kind of where we're at so I, i'm grateful to get older man <laughs> absolutely sure. so let's start it off like we start all of them off which is and i think i kind of know this the answer to this question but not everybody will so when was the first time you saw a musical instrument that inspired you to want to play? Well, mine is a very special one. All right, so my father uh, was shipped off to Okinawa during Vietnam because he was an air traffic controller. Before he left, he's originally from Cleveland, Ohio. Before he left, he bought a drum set from a guy down the street, which is an early 60s Rogers, uh, Red Sparkle, 2012-14, and that was my first musical instrument that he and my uncle played in the basement, listening to records. And that's the very first thing I remember. And that was it, man. I, my, I saw my dad play a beat. And his favorite record is Ball by Iron Butterfly. Not a lot of people know that record. It's the second record. It's yeah. the yellow one. Um, and he would play along to that. And I remember the very first time. It's a very vivid memory. I was a child, maybe four or five. And he played a beat and I thought my dad was a magical human being. I didn't understand what was happening. <laughs> the red sparkle drums and my father, who was just my dad, the army guy. And, you know, uh, so when he played that beat, it just, it scared me. And I just remember being like shocked by what was happening, listening to the vinyl, you know, the smell of their beer they were drinking, uh, you know, just that, that was it. That was the first one. And it just, it hooked me, man. Oh, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's my first experience, you know, like seeing that beautiful kit in my, it was at the time it was in my uncle's basement in Ohio. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. wild. And how far, uh, you grew up in Indiana, right? No, I was, no, because oh. my, 
both my parents, well, my dad was in the Air Force first, and then he retired, and then met my mom at Ohio State. They got married, had my sister, who's older than me, and then um, my mom was like, you got to do something, because at the time, he was working, I think, at Children's Palace. I don't know if you guys remember that. That's like the other, the budget Toys R Us. Okay. <laughs> so he was working there. My mom's like, you got to do something, you know, so he actually enlisted in the Army. So... Uh, oh, wow. He started training to be a DJ for the army, a radio DJ for the army. Oh, and cool. So um, well, I was born in Stuttgart, Germany. Oh, very good. Wow. I, I moved every year, year and a half of my life. And Fort Bragg, Fort Knox, Fort Bliss, Fort Rucker, Fort Campbell, all the forts. Uh, basically, I grew up all the forts in the South because my mom's from Mississippi. So we kind of just stayed in the South until I was 13. And then my dad retired and then we moved to Indiana because his family had all settled in Indiana. Oh, wow. interesting. Yeah, wild, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and in Indiana, you guys, I'm, I'm assuming if it was at your uncle's place in Ohio, you weren't very far from the Ohio. No, because it was, all, I mean, we always, no matter where we were, we just kind of like would drive, take, you know, we had my dad at old. Ford pickup truck, he'd throw a mattress in the back of my sister and I, give us a six pack of Coca-Cola and we, we'd go to my uncle's house, you know, and then the first thing I did was run down to the basement and go to the drum set. You know? Nice. Yeah. Okay. So when was the, uh, so at what point did you start, how old were you when you started getting behind the kit? Uh, then I really, I was Easily. then, but when I, so I really wanted to, constantly constantly do it when i was probably about 11 years old i really was just obsessed with it because my uncle that time we, my dad was stationed at the pentagon in dc and um my uncle had moved and he said hey do you just want to take the drums to your house in dc so i was about 11 years old when we moved there and then it, just from there on it was that's all i wanted to do that's all i wanted to do i was i played baseball and i loved baseball and i was my goal when i was a kid was to be i was going to be a pro ball player but then once the drums really took over, they just, you know, baseball kind of took the backseat. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how long did you play that Rogers kid? I would assume, I mean, back then, who thought about ever getting another one? At that point, you get a drum set, you got a drum set, right? Here's the thing. I, did, I didn't, my dad was kind of particular about it because he had, you know, it was kind of his baby and my uncle's baby. So he didn't really want me once... Once I started getting into punk rock, he was like, you're not, you're not taking this. You're not gigging with this thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and I did, I did a first, like a couple shows with it. Um, I did like a talent show at my local boys club and I played Wipeout, you know, <laughs> but other than that, he was like, no. So he and my mom in uh, Christmas of 88 or 89 got me a Royce drum set, which is a real cheap knockoff. Like I think it was Pearl's kind of cheap import kit. And they paid like 300 bucks for it. And that was my, I used that kit for the first split lip record, the second split lip record. Oh, did you yeah. really? Yeah. The first, so for the love of the wounded and fate's got a driver are on a $350 import drum kit. Uh, let's also yeah. clarify. You're saying like a cheap import drum kit. Yeah. 80 in, in 88, $300 for anything was still. It was a lot of money. That's an expensive import drum kit. Well, yeah, but I rem and I remember they made payments on it, you know, like 50, yeah. bucks, 50 bucks here and there. But um, but yeah, it was a big deal. And it was maroon, that maroon wrap color, mm -hmm. two big power toms and the rack, two big rack toms, floor tom. 
Um, and I, I, yeah, Clay, the guitar player from Champ Splitlet back then, he and I stripped it all. We stained it to make it look cool. You know, we like try, we took one of the toms away and then later we wrapped it in black to make it look cooler, you know, but yeah, but that was my kit nice. for since 88 to 96 till I got my first real pro kit. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. So I don't remember stretch. that shit. Yeah, that all that early split lip stuff, that whole time was on that that cheap import kit. Wow. <laughs> I loved it. Did, did you get a piccolo snare at some point? I mean, yeah. Dude, yeah. I mean, I still have one. <laughs> you know, um, I, I love, how could you not? I mean, it was kind of the blessing and the curse. It wasn't as high as the Snapcase snare, but it was. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Which I love. I, I love that shit. Um, but it was, yeah, of course, man. That was, I had a Remo Piccolo, like it was carbon fiber. Like it was, you know, thin little two and a half yeah. or three inch depth thing. And yeah. That's that crack. That's that crack at the beginning of For the Love of the Wounded. No, that. Okay, so that snare is the snare that came with the kit. That's a cheap steel. No kidding. You guys cranked the shit out of it. Well, I played um, because I marched in high school. So I would would take the marching snare heads, which were those woven, uh, the woven heads, you know, the heads that are like, carbon fiber and they have actual metal in them or whatever and i cranked it down so much i couldn't turn the the lugs anymore you know at all it's as choked as it'll get and tight and uh, yeah yeah cranked you know wow yeah that that's the for the love (laughs) snare but the the fake got a driver snare was the guy who we recorded with um gary spaniola was the guy it was in a basement of a house by the way he was the guy that did the beverly hills cop 2 soundtrack right you know so we did a lot of hits a lot of hits on that record yeah so he was that kind of like the older dude and let us you know we recorded in his house and he had like a custom uh mahogany snare so that's the fate's got a driver snare yeah it's warmer yeah it's definitely a lot warmer and nice but that's but the kit, the actual kit, is that import kit. Oh, wow! Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you're playing this Royce kit, yeah, which I guess makes a lot of sense. I mean, all of us at that point. I mean, I had switched over from from drums to guitar by the early '90s. Okay, um, but I think many of us had, you know, I had a CB700 kit. Yeah. Yeah. Right, which funny enough, all these years later, and I hate bringing things back to me, but it's so weird. Our com- my company now, yeah, which uh, was was originally C Bruno, which oh. was the company that made the CB seven hundred okay. drum set. Oh, that's wild! And I didn't know until like I, you know, I get hired by Fender to to run the sales team, and I go there, and I'm like, yeah, and they're like, oh yeah, that CB seven hundred drum kit we made. Funny enough. I'm sure you've seen this, and maybe you even had one. What? You know the uh, the Muppet Show drum kit we all had as kids? Of course. Yes. That was made by Noble and Cooley. I do know that. because I know that because I just befriended Luke. Um, Luke Garrow. Yeah. Garrow from Piebald. He's their kind of like main dude now. And yeah, I, yeah, he's uh, our president, I think. Yeah. yeah. We looked up at the history. I looked up at the history and everything, and they were a toy maker. That that was that's shocking. You know? Yep. And it's not where the drum factory is. They were actually building them up in Westfield, Massachusetts, which is not very far from here. Actually, Luke's I, I drove past Noble and Cooley today to go up to the lake with, oh, with really? some friends of ours. Yeah. 
Oh man, I got to I got to go there. He and I he can't we just did those Chamberlain shows in April and he came to the Boston show and we just talked and he's he's awesome. I just yeah, I I love that company, dude. I mean, those snares are amazing. Beautiful stuff. Beautiful stuff. And anyone who doesn't know, you know since we're doing sort of a geeky drum episode here, <laughs> um Noble and Cooley, they actually cut down or they used fallen trees from this neck of the woods, from yeah. Southern Massachusetts and Connecticut. Yeah. Um, good, strong tone woods as trees fall, people call them. And that's what they use to make drums. Yeah, and they're, um, steam, they're steam bent. So the snare drums are steam bent. They're not ply. There's no glue. They do, And they use the same machinery that they do from the 1800s. It's amazing. It's yeah, amazing. it's pretty it's crazy. Yeah. Let me know when you come up. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to go. Yeah, like, right sure. there. You know, um, it's it, it's funny. Just as an aside, uh, I'm not I'm not as well versed in drums uh, as my counterpart over here. Um, yes. I know enough to be dangerous. Uh, <laughs> but one thing I noticed, just like you were saying, you had that one kit that you used. Yeah. Up until '96, couple snare yeah. changes. Yeah. But you use that same kit. Yeah. Thinking back, it's one of these things it, that it's definitely a there's a different delineation between you guys as drummers and uh, guitar players, bass players. Yeah. The rest, like, I don't know. We kind of kept buying other stuff and wanting to improve and improve. And thinking yeah. back, all the bands that played in my basement were using whoever's drum kit was in my basement at the time. Like, yeah. Ari Katz or this other dude for another friend of mine, Chris Caponegro, or it was just like one kit that that dude, that was his kit, his yeah. only kit. Yeah. They didn't have other kits, and then everyone was using that kit. There, yeah. No one ever used separate drums. Like, I never saw you guys trying to buy new no. drum kits until you decided to buy new drum kits. Well, it was it was just kind of par for the course back then. No one won. We didn't have any money. We were just literally young teenagers. There's always that. You know what I mean? But we also didn't feel the need to be slick or professional, I think, till we got older, because it was more about the environment of the of the situation you know what i mean yeah. everyone just it was about whatever gear is there it's about who's in the room and who's going off you know what i mean that's kind of what the whole fun of it was and yeah. so and you get older and you're like wait a second i like this record what did you use on this record or you know but yeah it just you know it didn't really matter at all man it didn't yeah. actually matter at all it was just about the whole vibe you yeah. know so yeah. for sure so let's back up a little bit so um Split lip, yeah. snappy snare. Love that you went with snapcase. I mean, when you talk piccolos, you yeah. gotta talk snapcase. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Fate's Got a Driver for a second. And okay. and I and we touched on this a bit in, in Adam's episode because it's it's a real pivotal, and I don't know if you guys recognize how important this record is to the scene so much. So there, there are bands called fate's got a driver at this point. There are, um, it was a very influential record because it was a bunch of like-minded suburban hardcore kids figuring out melody is important. Right. And it's just at this pivotal point where everybody's starting to figure out how do I blend melody into what I do? Yeah. Um, let's talk about how that, how you approach that from a drummer's perspective. Well, from a drummer's, that's awesome. That's a great question. Um, 
the 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 way I thought about it, I think when we did for the love of the wounded, we were totally just metal kids. Adam and I especially loved thrash. He loved DRI. I loved like Slayer, Sepultura. Um, but we were also into like Downcast and these yeah. weird art, almost like I I think that record's like love a Downcast. Record. You know what I mean? At, at one point, everybody Huge Downcast show, fan. You knew when Downcast came to town because everyone had a Downcast shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that the conscious thing toward uh the face got a driver era with the from the drumming perspective i was obsessed at that point with dave abruziz who is the oh yeah second drummer in pearl jam or third drummer in pearl jam yeah to me the important drummer and but sorry to the other guys but to me oh, he was like i was obsessed dude i was i mean i my hair was real long I had to say, I've set up my drums like him. I, when we did Fate's Got a Driver, not a lot of people know this. I had a picture of Dave taped to my hi-hat stand. You know, for <laughs> nice. man, you know? Um, I was way into him. So I, my goal was to step it up and try to be, okay, I'm not great. My tempos at that time were all over the map. I, I started at one BPM and ended 40 BPMs faster, right? Slowed down in chorus or sped up in choruses, slowed down in verses. I was... As a tempo drummer, I was all over the map. But what I was trying to do was follow Adam more. So I always love following the guitar. And I love that the vocals go over everything. But my, like, kind of Braun, Braun from Mastodon does this too. He'll follow the riff. So I, in the beginning, was just trying to do everything I could. Because like I said, marching and stuff, I tried to, like, fit everything, you know, youth, a youthful energy, I guess. Try to get everything in as fast and as much as I could. Bates was the first record where I was like, okay, I want to try. And it was the first time I really learned how to, or uh, tried to execute it. I wanted groove and I wanted like uh, riffs on the drums, you know? So like the chorus of a song like Union Town is the same every time, right? So it's not like, oh, I'm just going to make this up and see what happens, which is pretty much a lot of the early stuff. I was just seeing what happened and had no idea what I was going to do. And it was different every time we played live. Bates was the first time where I tried to write riffs, you know, and write parts with what Adam was writing, you know? Yeah. Like, so. Oh, know. and it comes across perfectly. I mean, Uniontown's an amazing example of that. The, the, the chorus, those, the fill that you play in that chorus. Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever, I think I had thought, you came up with that and Adam's guitar part followed what you were doing. No, I always followed Adam. I was always whatever riff. And that, that's the thing. I think because he and I really cut our cloth as musicians together because of like the tempo changes and stuff, he and I just knew how it just happened organically. All of us were all over the map, but we were all over the map together, you know, which is something you can't really capture. Like same I'm not comparing us to the Rolling Stones anyway, but if you listen to all the Rolling Stone records, they're falling apart perfectly. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Slightly out of tune, but they're a train wreck that is just gorgeous, you know, and it somehow is them. We kind of had like, I guess, a punk rock hardcore version of that. Um, but yeah, I always followed the riff and I, I still do it today. And even like live, I'll have Adam in my ears like cranked, you know, because I follow him mostly. Yeah. Yeah. That that you know that opens up a whole new way to go back and sort of listen cuz I always the when you have a tight drummer and a tight guitar player mm -hmm. playing well together 
it gives the other guitar player opportunity to texture but it also gives the bass player room to breathe and put a different groove and that's something that curtis always did curtis is and curtis always had a bit of a pearl jam bass playing thing going on as well and we noticed that yeah well his his thing as a musician he's one of the he'll say this he's like i'm not a great bass player whatever i think he's one of the greatest bass players of that scene and any scene really because he's an artist and he's like completely has no rules he doesn't want rules and he 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 takes the like the you know that jack potential seven inch by uh i think jay robbins recorded it or was in the band right that bass sound is one of the greatest bass sounds ever that's why curtis got an svt was because of that record but he because adam and i would play a certain way it gave it did like you said gave curtis a lot of room to kind of color and be free but he's so musical and creates a vocal line within his own bass playing that david could sing his own vocal line so really what you have is adam and i being this like machine uh doing the riff and the drum part together kind of the race car of the whole thing you have curtis doing like a vocal line on bass you have david doing a vocal line together those two are in harmony adam and i are in harmony and you have clay with the les paul just like this warm yeah. underneath blanket you know so it kind of worked no it didn't, didn't kind of work, work. <laughs> it definitely worked if you take a song like uh um was surrendering the ghost i think mm-hmm. that one um that that whole thing is just i mean i'm just right on adam that whole time i'm just i'm like the fills and everything are what adam played on guitar you know you know it's funny when people so and we haven't even gotten to the fact that there's two versions of this record yet yeah i want to talk about that as well here we go uh um there's only one version of that record we all know (laughs) you know what i agree dude I i agree Yeah. I love blowing people's minds when they tell me how much they love that record. I'm like, great. Do you hear the split lip version? Yeah, like, yeah. What? <laughs> there is um, no Chamberlain I, I, version. I, there's a split lip version, and then there's whatever else you want to say. I'm, there's there. I think there's a story. Me personally, historically, <laughs> I think there's the split lip version was us in our most raw, real form. And I think Adam said it when he talked to you guys. We went on tour. We got tighter and all that stuff. And David wanted to sing differently. But I think the essence of what we were at that time, because all albums are chapters of your life and there's many diaries of your life at that time, the realness of that record is the split lip version. And my, that's my humble opinion. You know? Right. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I, I got it. I got that record right away. Um, yeah. And I think I was saying when, when we had Adam on, I'd heard some of that stuff, you know, a couple of those songs at least going back to, yeah. to long before that. And hearing, yeah. hearing those develop from your split lip self, like for the love of the wounded kind of time frame playing those new songs yeah developing to what they became on fate's got a driver yeah and then going beyond that to when they were chamberlain songs sure uh just watching that development with just one song was pretty cool uh, yeah you we used to act man we would antagonize anguish over one riff for three months we took so long to write songs and like the reason why there's what eight songs of fate's got a driver that's all we had within two years you know but they're all bangers yeah it's but great it's a great eight songs thank you i mean we we we, we sunk everything we had into it and that was a cool, i think we all believed 120 percent at that point what we were doing you know so would you say you were going to go down believing yeah uh, 
<laughs> and scene. Thank you very much. Good night. <laughs> so as you, you know, as we talk to people, I love describing you guys only because of how tight, fairly technical both you and Adam could be fairly emotional as Curtis and David could be. It's really good. Um, it's you guys are in some ways a prog band. We're completely, um, we, I, I will agree with that a hundred percent. If Adam and I had, if, if, if David and Curtis weren't reigning Adam and I in, it would have been a total prog band. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, we like, I'm not the only one who felt that way. Adam and I get in a room together just to jam and have fun within like five minutes it's just like punk rock rush you know it is i mean we yes. just you know, we're like mahavishnu orchestra you know like hardcore style <laughs> very cool yeah we i mean we he and i just we'll we'll go off on that stuff we love it you know all right so that's about the time i think dan might have met you guys a little earlier you guys playing new brunswick or you know somebody's basement maybe handy street or whatever it was but yeah. I think I met you guys somewhere around that 94, 95 era. Okay. Um, so to me, although I, I knew Split Lip, of course, had the records, knew what you were, knew what you are. To me, that's who you are. Yeah. At, at the time, Fate's Got a Driver is now out and you guys are touring and you guys are kind of doing this new thing. And by the way, parallel, right? Yes. You're doing this new thing. Texas Reasons doing this new thing. Shift's doing this new thing. There's yeah. a lot of hardcore. There's a lot of hardcore turning into really melodic rock and everybody kind of doing it their own way. What are you listening to? Because where I want to go with this is what are you listening to at this point yeah. That now gets you guys going in the direction of the moon, my saddle. So you're asking what we were listening to after Fates or during? More, during yeah, more so you. Me. What are you listening to? Okay. What What are you spinning regularly? What are your influences that are taking everything in this? Forgive me for saying it, Mellencamp direction. Okay. Well, that. All right. So I can give you everybody's. Go for it. Who they were. Um, Adam is totally like Elvis Costello freak. David, Bob Dylan freak. Uh, Curtis is always the hardcore punk rocker one who, who was obsessed with The Cure. Um, but collectively, at that point, Fate's got a driver point. And I could, I could tell you exactly what happened was Jawbox Savory came out. Landmine Spring by Quicksand, um, and then Archers of Loaf, right? Mm. We were obsessed. All of a sudden, it was like, yeah, I mean, we even made shirts that said, uh, you know, indie with the indie in parentheses, Anna. So indie, Anna rock. I mean, it, we were obsessed, you know? Um, so the Archers of Loaf stuff came out, and we were like, hold on, hold on, wait a second we don't have to be like tough guy, which we never, we never wanted to be tough guy, but, but inadvertently because of Endpoint and all those bands that we we're our older brothers who taught us, basically we kind of had the hard chugga chugga riffs and stuff. And Adam and I being metal kids, but when face happened, it was, it was that stuff. But me personally at that time was obsessed with Pearl Jam. And, and I was totally all, all in, 
musically with Pearl Jam, stylistically, you know, that's what I was obsessed with. The second that Oasis, What's the Story, Morning Glory came out, cut, chopped my hair, got all mod, was fully in. <laughs> you know, I just was obsessed with all of a sudden the whole Britpop scene happened. And that, that for me personally changed my drumming style. I wanted to simplify everything, but not not too much, not like where it did later become really simple. Um, but yeah, I mean, that stuff for me personally, it was it was Pearl Jam right into Oasis, Supergrass. You know, I love. I was obsessed with Supergrass and like, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was that's what led into that. And then we all moved down to Bloomington, which is where IU is from from Indiana. You know, and I'm from Noblesville, which originally, which is like forty minutes north of Indianapolis, and they called it Noble Tucky. I mean, it's it's the sticks, you know. Um, oh, I'm driving through it tomorrow. To through Noblesville? No, not the, but the sticks. I'm I'm flying into Chicago and I'm driving to Fort Wayne. So I'm driving through all the sticks. You know it, dude. <laughs> you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, yeah. um, so, but when we moved down to Bloomington, all of a sudden it was like we were getting older. And the truth is everyone like started smoking a little bit of stuff, started drinking a little beer. And like, we were like, hold on, dude, let's, Tom Petty's kind of cool. You know, like, what is this? And Springsteen kind of has some good songs, you know? Um, I personally, though, was not, as into that as the other guys because i was into the whole brit pop thing and i still will always have a metal side to my drumming because just what i grew up loving you know but it really developed into that whole what you want to call americana but for me i said the most i would say the most americana thing was the first wilco record yeah that, that inspired me to be like oh okay hold on i can like do cool mellow drum parts and not try to hit 30 china symbols at once and you know do all that yeah. bell whistle stuff yeah yeah and i don't know if wilco knows but i mean they're punk adjacent i yeah, think there are a lot of people I, that would I totally think they are I, yeah. I being from chicago and like that whole scene how could you not like you you know you, you're always around it and stuff and all these people that like you know i mean you look at gaslight anthem they're those all those dudes who are the sweetest people in the world are yeah. the most punk rock kids but they like you know, you you want to write good. You want to write American Girl, and you want to write like Running Down a Dream, and yeah, you know, like good classic Americana because that's kind of what we do. You know, it's like good, we love our rock and roll, man. You know, no matter what it is, you know. But we, I think, song structures started to really take shape, and like we learned, oh wait, chorus and and verse and oh, a bridge. Oh, not like a weird recording the TV static. You know, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> Alex was my door guy at Guitar Center. Are you serious? Swear to God. That rules. <laughs> Alex was my door guy. And from the first day, he started calling me Dante. No. From, from Clerks. So oh I'd walk past and I'd hear, do I smell shoe polish? Oh, dude. Oh, my but God. But, dude, we had a punk rock store. Yeah. It was me, Alex, Kyle Roggendorf. I don't know if you know punk rock Kyle from New Jersey. Uh, tours with the souls, like just tours with uh, great, great dude. Just stuff okay. with gaslight and all too. Yeah, tour to gaslight. Um, Brian Benoit from the Dillinger Escape Plan was yeah. in my guitar department. Kidding. Puda from Bulldoze was in my guitar department. Dude. Um, Scott Saint Hilaire from Lifetime. Yeah, was in my guitar department. Oh, really? Oh yeah, we had we had a fun store. 
John yeah. Doherty, right? John yeah. as well. I mean, we had like so many great dudes from the same scene. Wow. It was a blast. Dude, I worked at the Guitar Center in Hollywood in 2002. I know you did because sure. I tried to look you up in the system. Somebody oh, told me you did. Yeah, you yeah, were you oh, in really? the drum department over there? I was in the drum department. I was I was there for three months, you know, like oh, it, right, right, right before I got the gig with, uh, playing for Gavin Rossdale. I was working at the drum department there. <laughs> Very funny. Do you remember your employee number is the question? I don't, dude. You know, you know I really don't. But I remember <laughs> uh, it was cool because like, all the cats from you know like the big guys would come in like um all the like hot hot drummers would come in but i do my favorite thing ever about that place uh that time period was uh <laughs> this big samoan dude came in in full regalia you know monster dude came up to me goes give me the sticks not ass or anything it's give me the sticks i go okay <laughs> hand him the sticks goes over to like a brand new huge dw kit and he goes hello <laughs> It just starts smashing away. It was amazing, dude. <laughs> Could he play? Oh, he shredded. <laughs> it was so awesome. Awesome. That's so funny. You looked me up. Yeah, dude. I was I was there for three months in like the fall of 2002. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, okay. Now we get to the moon, my saddle. For anybody listening outside of our scene, um, it will be one of the most listenable punk adjacent records you you guys will ever listen to it really it's as as um uh charlie just said it's recognized as sort of americana direction it's definitely mellower it's got a very different groove i play it for people who are not punk people and they go wow these guys are these guys what and then i'll play them you know for uh for the love of the wounded and they're like oh yeah same, this is the same band like yeah, no it's the same band yeah um, I mean, it's like slayer and john denver you know what i mean yeah, it's yeah. Totally <laughs> so you guys are writing these tunes this is at the point where now we're we we're getting to know you guys and every time you come around we're we're hanging and yeah, yeah. um now you play these songs. I think the first time Dan and I see you play these songs was like might have been a CMJ, yeah. or it was like I think it was a CMJ, CMJ. maybe a, yeah. maybe it was the Doghouse Showcase show at CBS or something. Oh, that was at Brownies. Yeah, oh, Brownies. Brownies. Yeah, yep. yeah, I remember that, dude. Yeah. And we're like, we're all like, whoa, <laughs> right? So for us, it's it's a shock. Yeah, not a bad shock, by the way. We really dug it because I think we're all into those. Th I mean, Dan and I were totally into the the Brit popsy, and this isn't Brit poppy at all. No, of course not. we're all into so many different diverse. At that point, you're like, I, I could be in hardcore, I could be into hardcore, and not only listen to hardcore. Right yeah. now, you're allowed to do other things. Yeah. So big shock to our system. Yeah. Um, do you guys in the midst of this writing process yes do you guys ever go like are we pushing this too far does anyone go whoa whoa like is is curtis like the the true north on the compass going guys this is going a little too far at that point curtis he really respectively took a zen approach to it where i honestly at that point was not as zen with it i loved the era the era between fate's got a driver and the moon my saddle was 
I don't know if you've ever heard those songs like Magnetic 62nd. Oh, yeah. From Infinity to the County Fair. Yep. I think we, that for me was my favorite point because we had left that. We weren't totally Americana yet. We were kind of playing along with it and stuff. But the writing process for the moon, Curtis took a back seat and was just kind of there. I think I was probably butting heads a little more with David because he wanted to really strip it down and like dumb. I think at one point it was like, you got to drum your dumb, your drumming down, you know, and as a child, a kid, you're like, Oh man, no, this is what I do. But your ego's involved and everything. And mm -hmm. looking back on it, he was right because it was just what the song needed. But we, we didn't, we didn't like, how do I put this? We didn't want to shock anybody but we didn't want to limit ourselves to what we had done in the past. We had, we all, as, as a group, the five of us always were like, whatever we did, we can't do again. And we have to move forward wherever that is. We have no idea where we're going. We only know where we've been. So during that process, we had rented a cabin on 15 acres or David's parents had a cabin on 15 acres. We're in the woods. I mean, we're just, I mean, it was full on like the band there. They had big pink. We had a cabin, we called it Big Brown, you know, wow. and it just really acoustic guitars came in. Every got, everybody got quiet and it was hard for me at the time because I'm a loud, that's what I do is I'm a loud rock drummer, you know, yeah. so I had to learn. That was the first record where I did to a click. I had never played to a click. Ray Martin came in and, you know, I think Adam had talked about that. Talked like, about, yeah. You know, I, I had no idea <laughs> that I had sped up or slowed down that much and, Ray brought in a click and was like, you got to learn how to do this. So that was my first training with that. Um, but we were conscious. We knew what was going on. We, we were very aware of like, shit, are we really going to do this? Like, are we going to go out and like, David, are you really saying you, you, I look good in black and I'm as smooth as glass, you know, it's like, shit. All right, dude, like you're going to say that, you know, you like cigarettes in the morning, you know, <laughs> like, and, and kind of have like his, accent got a little different you know and all that but like we knew we were aware of what was going on but we weren't scared of it really yeah. there was definitely like butting heads within the band but we were all kind of like let's just see what happens but were you like, excited were you like excited for that no. or were you a little uh... i was me personally i was apprehensive um we were we were all nervous because i think we didn't know what was going on but we also knew that we couldn't keep doing what we were doing because it's like every there's all those bands that like that i love that i'm like oh green day this is a green day record this is the next green day record it's it, and they all sound the same and i love green day i was obsessed with green day when i was young mm -hmm. um but you know what you're gonna get uh, acdc record i bet i hope it sounds like an acdc record not you know like a disco record all of a sudden but we were scared how it was turning out but we had no control over it because we were like let's just do it man you know i remember when we wrote the song uh, until the day burns down the melody we called the local radio station because we thought it sounded like a stick song but we didn't know what song um uh so we called the dj and we sang the melody and she we were like what song is that she goes oh that's closer to my home or whatever by sticks and we're like oh man we're doing something completely different that's kind of uh-oh uh <laughs> you know we sound like sticks you know like yeah so it was it was a conscious it, i think it was the first time where we we didn't say hey man let's be an americana band now but it was yeah. the first time where we said let's not be afraid to do this 
you know, yeah. and I had to swallow a lot of my pride with it and say, okay, you know, I'll, I'll do this. But if you listen to it, like, I still have like China symbols on the record and like, you know, I'm still playing like a, a rock metal drummer. I but, was actually going to, the th one of the things that I noticed about, especially the Moon My Saddle, when you get to that point, mm -hmm. we, you had changed enough between For the Love of the Wounded and Fate's Got a Driver that we anticipated that change again. Yes. You guys were always growing and I, I always loved that. I thought it was cool. Thank you. But I think especially at that point yeah. of any of the directions that bands that we were into would go when they started transitioning stylistically into other, not even into other full genres, just like, you know, even slight stylistic changes. Yeah. Nobody had ever gone in the direction you guys went. Yeah. No one, no one yeah. went in that direction. And yeah. one of the things that was interesting for me is I think your drumming on that record yes. is just not reminiscent of everything that that style of music is. You oh, know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, sure. Like, I don't, I, like your drumming is still doing other things. And I thought that that was a very cool Thank you. thing yeah. about that music is that it's something that tied it with what you were doing already, kept it more in the wheelhouse of just going full on all right, you guys are Tom Petty now. Uh, right. You know, there was still something that was grounding it all uh, that made it more familiar. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, That's a good way of putting it. I mean, those parts, I did, because I, I didn't know what to do at that point yet. I wasn't, I wasn't mature enough as a player to understand, okay, no fills, no cymbals, no, just play the beat. I, I couldn't, I literally at that point didn't know how to do that. So I think I was still, like I said, going with Adam's guitar riffs, but his riffs had gotten simpler. So it was the first time where I was kind of exposed on my own and myself was still there, but it's, it's a tamed down version of myself. But yeah, like I still was a, kind of a punk rock metal drummer and I'm trying to play like Petty, you know, I'm like, I'm not yeah. like Sam Lynch, Steve Ferroni, his drummers. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm me and I that the whole Dave Aberzee's splash symbol busy craziness like Justin from Lincoln or something you know like I was into those great guys. drummer yeah. Urbanski yeah dude phenomenal like I'm um, date music fest 94 I looked yeah. at our, our tour manager it's like I'm done I quit this guy's kid and that's why I have a bell by the way is because of Justin and Brendan <laughs> but I was uh, fortunate enough to I went to school yeah. in West Virginia in 90 oh, oh okay. so I met those dudes when yeah. they transitioned from ice fan into Lincoln yeah. and it was yeah. amazing to oh, see incredible I mean yeah. mind-blowingly good um but yeah I it just I think thank you for that compliment about that record but I think it's it was rooted in not knowing yet how to transition into playing more for the song. I was playing more for the song, but not fully understanding that concept yet, you know? Well, and I think that's what pushes it a little bit. Yeah. It gives it a little edge. It gives it a little edge. Um, you know, you, you settle down into a groove. You don't compromise um, how you play. You don't compromise the tasty shit that I love that you do. <laughs> right. You. And then the same thing with Adam his riffs get simpler but they get a ton more soul yeah which which yeah. really gives it a feel yeah. um and then you know lyrics my this has got to be one of my favorite chamberlain lyrics of all time down the street they're tearing the church to the ground new yeah. orleans 
is washing her sidewalks down. You had to get lost in that big old town before you can finally be found. It's I still get goosebumps. It's just I you know I get goosebumps and I get I don't want to use the word jealous because I'm not jealous. I get proud oh, that cool. like contemporaries of of ours right friends we're all the same age we're seen adjacent we know each other or at least casual friends um and go like how the fuck did he write that <laughs> he's a poet i mean the he's a poet he really is i mean he's like the jim morrison of punk rock like <laughs> i i really think that his he's a poet first before anything and that actually the greatest part about that line is the bar fight that we got into with old pike right after it <laughs> we're in new orleans when that was happening and it was you know in the morning they bars closed for like what an hour just so they can spray all the puke and all the stuff off the sidewalk that's what that is yeah and that, that morning at about four in the morning i'm outside the bar hanging out with david he's smoking a cigarette i look in and i see mike flynn who's the organ player from old pike He's got it. All I see is him with a bar stool like this. <laughs> and he goes to swing at some dude and slips in a whole thing of beer. The bar stool goes flying. And I look at David. I'm like, shit, I guess we got to go in. <laughs> I mean, so when you say that lyric, New Orleans is watching the sidewalks down. It, there, I mean, there's so much in that because there's a lot of soul, but my mind instantly went to, wow, the bar fight was pretty Bar crazy. fight with old Pike. <laughs> yeah, we, we went to back him up. You know, they were getting into it with some other guys, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's let's now fast forward again, because I, I know we're talking a lot about Chamberlain. I want to talk sure. a lot about you as well. Sure. Um, at this point, um. Chamberlain's definitely more progressed. Uh, are you starting to get into vintage drums? Are you, are you, you know, do you buy a new kit? Obviously at this point you got a new kit. What do you, what are you playing? Okay. So I played that Royce kit all the way to 96. And after Fate's Got a Driver was the first time, uh, cause we started seeing Super Chunk. We started like loving Archers of Love, like I said, uh, on the whole like indie kind of thing. And I was like, oh, I, I need a real professional kit. So I went out and I bought the first uh, incarnation of a Pearl Masters Custom. Mm. Um, and it was like, you know, back in 96, it was like $1,800. And it was it was a big deal. It was my first pro kit. So I had that kit. Um, and that's the kit that I recorded Magnetic 62nd and, for, and any, from Infinity the County Fair on. Um, and I felt when we were doing the moon my saddle it was really high end and too it was a little too pearl jam as they say you know like it was very slick and modern rock kind of sounding and of course our you know started growing our beards a little bit and flannels came out and we got a little more country and it just happened and so i fell in love i found a 1973 slingerland and uh at my local drum shop in indianapolis the drum center i don't think it's there anymore unfortunately it was a great shop um and i had it wrapped because it was all the original wrap was kind of coming off right. i had it re-wrapped in white marine pearl oh classic um, yeah and so uh i and then i had like because i was super into buddy rich at this time um but the guy that really made me do it rest in peace bless your soul taylor hawkins was taylor from the foo fighters because taylor 
at that time had just joined Foo Fighters and the way he set up, I was like, okay, I went from Dave Eberzee's Pearl Jam, fell in love with Taylor and all of a sudden slowly because of David and David and I lived together at the time when we were making that record, um, the, the band and Levon and all these like, Oh, hold on, man. I want these old Woody kits. And so yeah. the, the moon, my saddle was recorded on a 73 slinger. Lid. And what snare drum did you use? That was a DW um, six and a half by 14 maple. Warm. Yeah. Very yeah, warm. Super warm. But I, but I cranked it again. Um, didn't use marching heads at this point. I used regular, regular remos. Um, but yeah, that was that was a DW. But at that point, you're learning. At that point, you're learning. Toms don't have to be tuned to the note of the song anymore. You can do yeah. that warm woody tone. Yeah. But snare drums can be tight without being choked. Yep. They can have depth. They can have depth, warmth. But I I have always liked ring on all drums, and I think because of that comes from. You know, I didn't know what a monitor was. I'm I'm 40% deaf in my left ear, literally, because of, of the hi-hat. No, because of Adam Rubenstein being cranked on <laughs> <in my laughs> monitor. I don't, you know, our his amp, their amps were right there. So I said, Hey, turn your amps in. We didn't have monitors in punk rock shows, you know. So I was had that crank, but like I started to learn so so the tone of my drums, I wanted wide open and ringy so I could hear them over cut through the music, you know, because it was so loud. Um, but I started to learn how to tune, not to the notes and all that stuff. And I just turned, started to learn. I've always liked a warm attack, but I love a really nice long sustain, you know? And like that turned into like drummers like today, who like duct tape, flat. I mean, everything's just dead and flat and low. Yeah. Big you fat know? drum sound. Just yeah, throw, yeah, yeah. throw another piece of plastic yeah, on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like which is cool, which works for so much stuff. It does. Yeah. But for what I do and what I love is I love like Matt Cameron's snare sound. That whole grunge, like uh, Sean Kinney from Alice in Chains. Yeah. Big wide open kits, the bottom thing. You know, you tune them higher and let them ring, yeah. but then the wood, the wood can come through. So I, I started to learn how to do that, oh, and I still do that today. You know, 